This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines. Welcome to today's program. Managers play a central role in successful employer wellness initiatives. Unfortunately, many employers struggle to get their managers to embrace their role in the well-being of their direct reports, which can greatly diminish the potential of workplace wellness programs to achieve their full potential. Here to discuss this today is Scott Beeson, a professor of management and Silberman Global Faculty Fellow at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Scott's the author of three books, including his most recent, The Whole Person Workplace, Building Better Workplaces Through Work life, wellness, and employee support. Scott is a speaker and a consultant who's been featured on UN, the United Nations International Day of the Family, and the White House's Summit for Working Families. His work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, Fast Company, and he's been featured on NBC, CBS, NPR, and Bloomberg Radio. Scott will discuss with us today the important role managers play in employees' professional and personal lives and provide strategies for engaging, training, and formally holding managers accountable to support well-being initiatives. Scott will also draw from his new book and his consulting work leading in, with leading employing, employer companies. So, Scott, thank you very much for being here so, today. Can you define what you mean by whole person workplace? ways that different employers value employees so you could value an employee like just a part of the machinery right that you just you know pay for you know a certain period of time of work and then then release um, you could value an employee actually a lot of employers and pretty good employers say things like employees are like our valuable assets or right. our most valued asset but that's even kind of limiting because you take care of an asset so that it returns on your investment right um, so that's like let's have this person work 65 hours a week every week but let's mm. give them a little bit of a wellness program so they're like ready for more beatings next week um <laughs> and you know that's not really optimal either right so i think that you know the ideal way uh, and the way that most uh, employers should be valuing employees is uh, not just as a part of the machine or just a, as an asset but as a whole person and um this means you know we 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 don't just care about what they're returning at the workplace. We care about that. But we also realize that the separation between work and life is very, very thin if there is one at all. And that if someone's thriving in the rest of their lives, um, that's good in and of itself, but also it, it helps us create better workplace relationships, better organizations, uh, et cetera. So a whole person workplace will care about the outside of work responsibilities, stressors, um, uh, passions, priorities of their employees that are, you know, not considered necessarily just work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if you do that, again, you build uh, a workplace culture of mutual care. You um, you greatly lower things like turnover. You create resilient organizations, organizations that even if they're working hybrid or remote, are still connected to each other and you're still connected with them. And um, if I may, uh, I think um, I'd like to provide a quote that I got from someone that I interviewed for the Whole Person Workplace book. Um, and, and she was, a, uh, at the time, was a CHRO, now she's an independent consultant. But 
I, I think she says it so beautifully, so she says it better than I can. Um, and actually, her quote gave me the title uh, of the whole person workplace. Um, and she said, we have to realize we get the whole person through the door. We get their backs and their hands and their minds and their hearts and that they're at all different places in their lives. Um, so we need to take care of them the very best we can. And I think that's the philosophy, right? That we understand that um, they're human beings, their backs and hands. Many people work with their bodies. We need to take care of people's physical health and physical safety, hygiene, you know, all the things we, we, we know through COVID, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to take care of people's minds and hearts, the things that they care about, engaging their minds in their work, uh, but also, the thing, you know, their caregiving responsibilities and, you know, their physical health, but their mental well-being, um, you know, in all of these matters. And if we expand our level of care um, as an employer, as a manager, um, you know, I think there's lots of returns in ways that are tangible or perhaps intangible as well. What role do you really think they play from your professional experience and how do most managers actually approach this role? Yeah, I, I see kind of three categories of how managers deal with well-being and, and wellness issues. And one is that they're passive and not particularly receptive um, so or perceptive. Mm -hmm. And so they just, as long as everything seems kind of okay, they don't really do much about it. And then these are the people who have employees who are quote unquote quiet quitting or actually quitting and they don't exactly know why, right? They don't know why I haven't engaged this employee or why this employee who used to be seemingly dedicated is drifting away. Um, they don't ask about what's going on in someone's life that they can maybe help accommodate and, and, and then wind up keeping this employee. Um, that's, so that's passive and not receptive. Um, I think many managers are really passive but receptive so that um, they're approachable at least when employees have issues or problems and they, they're not proactive about things, but if, if something's brought to their attention, maybe they'll, they'll do something about it. And I actually have a great uh, anecdote uh, from one of the interviews in the book where this one organization had, um, they did 8.45 a.m. all hands meetings. It was a relatively small company, um, but this is pre-COVID, but every day they had an 8.45 all hands meeting. And there were a segment of their employees for whom this was very stressful, right? Um, and this one employee had four kids and had to get them to daycare and to school and to get them all out of the house and everything. So this employee was explaining to me that they went to bed with a pit in their stomach, knowing that they had to get up mm. at six o'clock to, you know, get all these little human beings uh, up and about and ready and all that, which... You know, if you're a parent, you know, can, is can be very difficult and get them to school and daycare and everything and then get to these meetings. And he would show up to these meetings a lot of times at 850, distracted, frazzled, etc. And one day the boss was like, hey, you know, after the meeting was like, what's going on? Like, you, you didn't seem like in it today. And, you know, the, the person said, you know, I got to tell you, it's really stressful getting here for 845 all hands meetings. And, you know, and here's why. And the boss was like, oh, my God. I never meant to make you feel that way. From now on, our all hands meetings are at 10, right? And so boss didn't do anything, right? The manager didn't do anything until they were presented with the problem, but at least they responded then. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that, that's a great example of, you know, whole person workplace doesn't have to be, you know, the million dollar wellness program. It could be 
changing times for things to accommodate people, you know, things that don't really cost you anything. Uh, but finally, you know, the ideal is that managers would be more proactive and they would find out their employees' pain points, um, you know, that they would, uh, you know, really try to figure out, you know, what what's, you know, holding some employees back from, you know, really being engaged or really being focused um, and or really thriving or doing as well um, as they could be. What have you seen in your work that's costing a company? If you could tick off like three ways that managers inside an organization could be leveling costs on their employer by either not being aware or being aware and not doing anything to support well-being. So, you know, I sometimes think that having a quote unquote policy in name only uh, is sometimes worse than not having the policy at all. Um, you know, having, you know, a wellness program on the books or, you know, a PTO policy on the books, but the culture doesn't support it or the managers don't really support it um, is a bit of a bait and switch, right? And I think that some organizations do that. Hmm. They, um, you know, an HR department might be, you know, incented to like, we offer all these things, but they don't really offer them or they the culture doesn't really support them. And I think that's, that's kind of, what I've found is the, the most disconnect um, that managers often have. What does that do to a workplace culture? So a whole person workplace, and, you know, as I'm defining it, really is all about sincerely held values being translated into decision making, right? And that creates the culture. Um, and if there's a disconnect on either the values or on translating those values, you know, it, it, it really is can be damaging, right? Um, especially if the organization is saying we really care or we want to be an employer of choice or, you know, whatever, you know, we care about your well-being. And then employees that are hearing that message but not seeing it followed through upon with action, um, you know, that's demoralizing, you know, and that's the disconnect. Right. And that comes from managers and that comes from leadership. Um, and if I could give one like counter example. Um, you know, I worked for a couple of years actually with um, um, Microsoft with their parental leave program, and I have to say they they really turned this around. Um, they had a very generous uh, parental leave policy, but especially dads were hardly using it. Um, even though they were they were eligible for up to twelve weeks of leave, they were mostly taking two because two looks like a vacation, and nobody raises their eyebrows at it. And um, so they, they put all these supports in around paternity, uh, paternity leave that engages their, their manager in proactive conversations before somebody goes on paternity leave uh, about, you know, what are we going to do about the work and how do we like figure out which employee we're going to like roll over some responsibilities for and make sure the work team is not overloaded. And also we did some, and this is what I did, I did mo mo more preparation with the expectant father about both managing the work part um, pre and post leave, but also becoming a working dad for the first time, becoming a father and some of the things to expect and, and supporting them with that part of maybe the anxieties that they had in their invisible backpack. And after like 18 months of providing this, it caught on. And now at least, yeah, you know, I'm no longer working on this, but, um, by the time the project ended, uh, most dads were taking something like eight to 10 weeks of the eligible leave versus the two. And you know that just shows that um, a good policy supported by leadership that enrolls managers in it, right, um, really can 
create better wellness in, in, in one's organization. If you were to sum up where the, you know, where the, with the employee on one end of the spectrum and the, the um, department that you know, put that policy in place on the other and in the middle is the manager being the linchpin. So essentially it's the big disconnect between that there is a policy that it's expected to be used you know, to you to be utilized it's not just lip service uh, and that it has consequences even with uh, employee retention right because you can attract yeah. them with that policy but you may not retain them losing a good employee on your team it can be debilitating right and it leads you for so much more work and churn and now i got to hire somebody and train somebody and somebody right. else is working overtime and burning out right um, right so there's like that kind of stressful churn just in the own supervisor or manager's life but you know, in a large organization, especially, they should be tracking these things, right? What's the turnover rate under different managers? And then, you know, what were the reasons for these things? You know, if you're doing exit interviews or, or other things like that. And, you know, there should be accountability built into this. And I know many organizations that do track these things um, where they look at employee engagement scores and they look at turnover rates in different departments and units. Um, and that's part of the accountability that, that is brought to managers you know, you need to give managers the tools to be able to do this. It's difficult being a manager, it really is. It's, it's, you know, you're in the middle, you're getting pressure from above and pressure from below. And, you know, I, I think it's up to HR departments and leadership to make sure that managers have the tools that they need and the resources they need um, and the orientation they need to support these things the way they should. So it's accountability, yes, but it's also we need to equip managers uh, to be able to um, really support employee well-being and the well-being programs that we've put in place. We talk a lot at the Returns on Well-Being Institute about the role of CEOs, and you know, CEOs having a hand in uh, designing its you know its priorities, uh, accountabilities, goals, linking it to business and outcomes and employee uh, outcomes. But you know, in your observation, in your work, what role do CEOs play? What role can they play in all of this? vis-a-vis uh, -vis getting managers engaged and seeing this as an important part of their job. When CEOs get behind something visibly and, you know, really get out front communicating about it and put a stake in the ground around something, things tend to move pretty quickly. If something's right. just coming out of an HR department or is kind of a bottom-up thing where one or two individual managers are doing things in their areas, change comes slowly. Um, so... You know, I think that what the CEO, what many leaders and CEOs should be doing is maybe seeing like what some of the pain points are, listening to managers about what they would like to see. Um, and and then when they see an initiative that really needs to be become widespread and needs to be accelerated, you know, they're the ones who could really help make that happen. Um, and if I could give, um, you know, uh, again, so. Now I'm going to talk about Ryan. Um, it's yes. a financial services company out of Dallas, but they're you know nationwide and even have international offices. They're now like a mainstay on the Fortune uh, 100 best places to work, most flexible workplaces. But back in 2008, they were very much like one of those. Um, and in fact, their glass door at the time said that they were like a well-paid sweatshop. Um, oh. And that uh, people were expected to work, you know, consistent 60, 65 hour weeks. The number one thing that they um, uh, they when they did performance evaluations, the first thing they did, they ranked people by billable hours. 
uh, before they even went to like customer satisfaction or anything. Um, So it was really one of those cultures where it's like, you know, people paid well. It was a good organization in many ways, but they burned people out and their turnover rate was well over 30 percent. I think it was 34 percent. And, you know, when, when you're hiring MBAs and CPAs and things like that, the CHRO, and actually this was the CHRO that gave me the quote about the backs and hands and minds and hearts, she was hired and she, for a couple of years, was really trying to change this culture without much traction. Um, and she was always in the CEO's ear kind of saying, we need to be more flexible. We're losing too many people. And he's like, no, you know, we, we need to work hard and all that. And then... You know, uh, and it's this is actually the story I begin the book with, was this um, kind of young up and coming uh, manager, young manager at Ryan, uh, walked into the CEO's office with her resignation letter and a tear in her eye, saying, "You know, I love this job, I love this company, but I'm starting a family and I don't see how I can make that work here." And this got the CEO, shocked the CEO to attention. And the very next day, he went to the CEO, the CHRO and said, do it, do it all, do everything you want to do. I'm behind you 100%. Um, and over the about a five year transformation, they became a result only workplace with that performance evaluation that I talked about, best in class, kind of, you know, hybrid remote workplace, um, even many years pre COVID. And it accelerated their financial success. Every metric is better. Uh, their turnover rate is something on the order of four or five percent. Faction rate jumped from about 92 percent to about 98 percent. Um, their financials are better. They've grown. You know, their you know, if you go to their their webpage, you'll see all the accolades they get from the Fortune 100 to you know all the other best employer things. You know, um, lists and everything else. And, um, you know, in every way, they've, they've become a better company. And in large part, it's because the C- CEO got behind it, which meant that it, it didn't become an HR initiative. It right. became a whole organization initiative. And right. he wound up getting managers from all over the organization and employees from all over the organization to participate in the change effort. They wound up retaining that employee who handed in that resignation, and she's still there. Um, and it, it's what I said, two, 2008, you know, this is what, 14 years later. Um, and, uh, you know, they've become a best in class company in large part because uh, the CEO, Brent Ryan, who was voted the number two CEO during the pandemic, um, according to the Glassdoor survey, um, you know, he really turned it around and he got behind it, not because he saw the quote unquote return on investment numbers or the whatever. Um, he wound up getting it because he felt it personally, because an employee that he cared about was leaving because of how they set up the organization. So, right. you know, uh, there's a couple of lessons here that um, you need to have a plan in place. You need to have leadership buy in and, and leading on it. But also there's different ways to persuade people. Um, some people need the numbers. Uh, some people need the story and, you know, you have to figure out what's going to be most persuasive uh, when you're a consultant, a client, a manager, mm-hmm. an advocate, um, et cetera. What I find interesting, and let me uh, put in the caveat here, you know, the, the Ryan um, example you just gave and what opened up the CEO's eyes, um, and we talk about this a lot, is the CEO saw vividly that 
this company was going to lose, obviously, a highly uh, 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 trained, uh, uh, highly valuable employee because they're going to do something natural like start a family. And, you know, that was going to, you know, if you even just put aside for a minute the human empathy generated that moment, yeah. the, the, the cost to the company would be tremendous, right? You, yeah. Out would go the client relationships this uh, person has established, uh, the institutional knowledge, uh, you know, the, the, the team dynamics that uh, she was certainly part of. And then you have to go find somebody to come in. Uh, this is this is costly and it's a it's it's an avoidable distraction. I think that's what we're getting at, and um, what seemed to have worked and it makes I've seen this in other instances with other other CEOs. Even though we're talking about managers here, is you, you have to make it real. You have to show this impacts the things that you care about, right? So for a CEO, they don't want to lose their human capital, especially when it's going to impact. Uh, you know, high-value accounts, company reputation, other things like that. You know, managers have other concerns. Uh, human capital, of course, but it's often you know from a different you know vantage point, right? Uh, but it's still a human capital concern. So it sounds like what you're seeing that does work, whether it's a CEO um, or or a manager, you have to make it relevant to them. What not paying attention to the workforce's well-being is doing to the things that they most care about, the things that keep them awake at night. You, in your book, you discuss uh, in detail the importance of soliciting feedback from the workforce, not assuming you know what people need. Um, very smart advice, and in the work we've done and the companies we've studied, that's exactly what they do. Uh, you know, These are stakeholders inside your company, and uh, I think you said to eliminate blind spots in decision-making. Uh, can you talk about as you've seen in your work and in the research your book, how are companies doing that, eliminating the blind spots in their decision-making with regard to what employees want and need? Yeah, and I think blind spots the good way to put it because, you know, very well-intentioned, extremely smart people um, sometimes overestimate their abilities to make the right decision that impacts everybody in the right way, right? Um, and it's not that people don't care and it's not that people aren't smart. It's often that we just don't see the whole picture with just one set of eyes, right? My entry into this kind of being a, a, a scholar and a practitioner in work life and wellness uh, really started in the parental leave world. Um, you know, I worked with several companies who were very frustrated, again, that, um, you know, we have this great policy, but people aren't using it. And I, and, but, you know, I noticed when I get this question from these companies I'm working with, these are coming from 65 year old white guys and not to, you know, be derivative or ageist or, or anything here, but I think many people of a certain generation or certainly men of a certain generation have had a different, um, in general, have had a different experience with work life balance than the younger men in their organization and certainly the women in their organization. Um, but they're the ones who are putting together the parental leave program and the communications around it. Um, and I just, I, and I'm like, you know, you put together something really good, but you know, how many, you know, 30 year old new dads have you talked to who, you know, mm. um, probably have a spouse who also works. Right. And right. And you know, how many, adopted gay couples have you talked to you know to make sure that your policy applies to them and how many women 
uh, <laughs> have you had in this? And actually, how many childless employees have you had having to talk to to make sure that you're not kind of being unfair or overburdening mm-hmm. uh, other people? And mm-hmm. they often, you know, shift their eyes and say, "Not enough." And you know, I think that's kind of the the point, right? They're trying to do the right thing, and they feel like they they've done the right thing, and now but people aren't responding. Um, and it's because of a blind spot in their decision making. And, um, you know, so that's what I always advocate is like, well, it's not too late. We could do this. And uh, large organizations can do this with surveying, uh, employee resource groups, um, you know, and many other formal mechanisms. You can have, you know, not just exit interviews, you can have entrance interviews, you could have uh, persistence interviews um, with employees on their like anniversary of their, their hiring date. Uh, do something like the things you ask in an exit interview, like, you know, what did you like here? What could be improved here? Um, you could have workshops, um, you know, whether you bring in outside speakers or do it yourself to talk about, you know, these important issues. You know, when we're talking about diversity, um, equity and inclusion initiatives, I mean, the point is to get different voices uh, in these. And, you know, again, that reduces blind spots in decision making. Um, if you're a smaller company or within your own department as a manager, it's conversations and talking to people and just getting to know them a little bit about their lives outside of work. In the big picture sense, you know, um, listening, empathy, and support, right? That that's kind of the underlies a whole person workplace. Listening to employee needs, having empathy for different situations, and then where you can providing support. And you could do that formally from the top of an organization, or you could do it sometimes ad hoc or informally um, at the managerial or small business owner level. Is there anything in the training of, of managers to understand how to be good stewards of the company's well-being policies that you've seen out there? Well, you know, I've, I've been seeing more and more uh, companies getting behind like empathy training, um, and not that we can, you know, empathy is. Some people see it as a personality trait, but it is something we can learn the skills of. Just listening better, um, withholding our own thoughts as we listen. Um, so, you know, that's something I've seen be pretty successful. That could be helpful for managers and just another way to help them be more successful in it. I'm sympathetic to managers who are often hit with a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> and I think sometimes they are told that an awful lot of things are their top priorities. Sure. Right. And I think an organization needs to clarify what really are our priorities. You know, there's a short term, long term problem sometimes with invest, you know, feeling like people need, can invest the time and money they need to promote well being and wellness programs. Um, I think most people intellectually get it's a long term benefit, but you know, sometimes it's hard to, um, you know, focus on the long term if all our measures and how we hold people responsible are very short term in their minds. So, you know, these are things we could do to support managers, I think, is, you know, really not having them torn in so many different directions that they feel like they're, they're, they can't pay enough as much attention to these as, as maybe they'd like to. What about uh, accountability? The idea being that you know, work, workplace well-being is company policy. Uh, you know, it's endorsed at the top, you know, from the C-suite down through the organization, and it is as important as anything else because it 
is uh, instrumental in you know our success equation, right? It's part of how we do business. It's just smart to do it that way. Okay, so assuming that's our starting point, managers are properly made aware, trained, reminded. Um, you know, they have a sort of listening dashboard approach with regard to employee assessments and surveys. But what about pegging this to uh, managers' performance? Uh, metrics and what do you do when managers still struggle to get it right despite the investments in them to help them get it right many organizations struggle with doing performance evaluations for even you know hourly employees who have pretty narrowly defined jobs right um, it becomes more complicated doing performance evaluation when we're talking about managerial jobs where there's so many different ways to do the job well and you know one's job description and one's role are sometimes a little different because roles change and expand over time. So it's difficult to do good performance evaluation for managers and supervisors, but it's so important. And you know that's something that many companies need to, to really uh, wrap their hands around. But if you make it part of the formal evaluation of managers, you know, for example, how engaged are your employees? What is your turnover rate? These are some metrics that can be mm. added into this. You know, when we, if you do a management by objectives or goal setting kind of approach to your performance evaluations, you know, we, we can set three six month goals on making progress on employee well being and wellness and, you know, how many people are enrolling in things and, you know, what's the, what are our employee surveys say about people in your, um, in your department? Um, those can be built in. So if employee well being, is a priority of our organization it needs to be included in our performance evaluations mm -hmm. and it needs to be an indicator in our compensation program and maybe it needs to be part of how we hire and how we onboard employees right instead of it just being another thing for people to do on top of the real work um, it needs to get embedded into these other processes so uh, again i'm you know without seeing what a company's doing with performance evaluation and accountability um, you know, I would say embed, the, the, if it's your priority, it has to be embedded in how you evaluate and how you compensate your managers. And I guess finally, it's like, you know, a company should examine the pattern of how, who are the people who are getting promoted to higher and higher positions. And, you know, if they tend to be highly effective jerks who get promoted to higher levels, then maybe that's not, maybe they don't have the right you know, decision-making going on in terms of promotions, um, right? Um, right. If the profile instead is where, you know, yes, this, this latest batch of people who got promoted into management tend to be pretty empathetic. Um, you know, they, they're balancing, you know, these employee needs pretty well, you know, then maybe we're doing something right. Uh, but we need to track these things. There isn't a perfect uh, fit-all recipe for this, uh, you know, this big topic we're talking about. It's going to vary by company size, industry, uh, whether the company tilts toward, um, you know, more entry-level workers or, or you know, higher educated work. It, it, it's really a different um, thing. But what, um, what I think listeners of this podcast can take away is there are a lot of good uh, blueprint examples emerging. Your book has many of them, and I encourage listeners to buy it and read it. There's a lot of good ideas in there. And um, 
our report that we just released, also looking at the 18 companies, there's a lot of ideas in there, uh, not just about uh, you know managers and well-being, but many other things. So it's about looking at what's working elsewhere uh, to inform your own approach, customize your own company. So um, Scott, is uh, it's been great speaking with you today. Is there anything else you would add before we sign off? Thank you. I think that the point you just said was very well well presented. Um, if I could just reinforce it. You know, there are things you could do in any context in on almost any budget to and the important thing is to start where you are. Um, and again, listening, empathy and maybe thinking a little creatively about how we can support people um, really is the the underlying principle in a whole person workplace and in truly supporting employee wellness and well-being. And a great note to conclude our interview on. So, Scott, thank you again for being here, sharing your advice, and I encourage everyone to pick up Scott's book. It will be in the uh, podcast show note. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.